This is uh, Paul Gillette. I've got Jim Lincoln with me. Uh-huh. We're we are expecting the imminent appearance of uh, Christopher uh, Palomares, but in the meantime, uh, Jim, I wanted to tell you, a friend of yours called me the other day. Oh boy! And he said, "Do you know uh, Jim Lincoln?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, uh, "We do the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast together." He says, "Oh, okay." He said, "I know him too." And I said, "Ah, oh, cool." And uh, I said, can I ask who's calling? And he goes, yeah. He said, this is uh, Lionel Strang. Yeah. And I went, really? I said, I hear your name a lot. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> he, said, uh, uh, he said, I won't take a lot of your time. He, I said, well, is there a message for Jim? He said, yeah, tell Steve I called. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't doubt it. I- yeah, uh, he stays and he stays in podcast purgatory forever. <laughs> <laughs> Changing gears real quickly here. When is the uh, oh the big uh, show up there at the Amherst Society show in West Springfield? That one's normally the last weekend in January. Oh, why was I thinking it was a fall event? Uh, there is a show around here that's a fall event, uh, but it's not nearly that big. There, there used to be the Craftsman Structure Show, which was out here. Uh, that's a fall event, and okay. that's now the Model Rail Expo, or some or Fine Scale Modelers Expo, and that's I don't know when that is. Uh, it's either October or November. It's in it happens to be in Pittsfield um, this year. I am not going to have the opportunity to go, but uh, it's in it is out here. I I spent two days in Pittsfield. When I was with Alcoa, we had a meeting with uh, one of the resin suppliers up there, uh-huh. and we stayed at the Cranston, which I guess is, used to be somebody's huge summer estate uh-huh. from New York. Okay. And it was just incredible. I mean, we were just there for one night. And uh, a breakfast before we headed out to the meeting, but I went, wow, this is one whale of a lifestyle, thinking back when that was a, you know, a family residence. Oh, yeah. And uh, our rooms, Ron and I, we had rooms out in what was one of the servants' quarters, I guess. <laughs> and Slumming it. Oh, oh, it was just, it's like, it was like in the movies. There was no central heat. Mm-hmm. The uh, but there were like twelve foot ceilings. The bathroom was marble, and it had a uh, heater built into it. Mm-hmm. And you know the big three inch thick window coverings to help keep the cold out, right. and six inches of uh, down filled blankets. Mm-hmm. But it was so cool. And the guy at the desk, he goes, because it was below freezing that night. He goes, get up about two o'clock in the morning and turn the bathroom heater on. He said, that way, when you get up at 6, the bathroom will be nice and toasty. He said, when you go and take your shower, just take all your clothes and get dressed in there. There you go. And, uh, but it was, it was so cool. What a neat place. Why is it dogs go berserk when the doorbells ring? Uh, That's their job. 
Okay, I, I missed that in the uh, application. Yeah, they're supposed they're supposed to yeah. they're supposed to warn you that people are coming to the house. That's little dogs. That that is in fact what they were bred for. But you know our security system, when until you turn it off, whenever you open a door or a window, it's a doorbell. Right. But it's not that real shrill, discordant, mm-hmm. you know, uh, thing we've got. It's just a very soft, elegant ding dong. Yeah. They never even rouse when the Ding dong is off. Okay, what were we talking about before the dogs went off the meds? Uh, you were talking about how wonderful the hotel was and how stinking cold it was. Oh yeah, it was just anyway. It was just great, and uh, even at six thirty in the morning, we went over for breakfast. This huge, huge fireplace roaring in the uh, yeah the foyer with the desk and stuff. Yep. Okay, that's my Pitchfield. Story. That's the only story of Pittsfield I have. Yeah, I thought when I was young, I I went out there with. um, Oh, we went and visited some friends of my mom, and uh, we did some rail fanning there. Uh, I had pictures of stuff that um, I now know is was fairly uncommon uh, to see it. But I didn't realize what it was. Uh, I didn't realize what it was at the time until like years. Years later, I realized it was a quartet of ST forty five dash twos, and um, I thought that you know it's ST forty dash twos, no biggie. You know, I didn't know at the time. And then, then when I like looked at it later, I looked at the pictures and I'm like, wait a minute, those aren't ST forties. They're ST forty fives. Good grief. Yeah. Um, and when I've told people, they're like, really, four of them together in Pittsfield? You're kidding? Nope. Saw it two days in a row actually. Um, now, isn't the Selkirk Yard Close by? Ah, it's not real far. Um, about 40, maybe 50 miles. Ah, okay, okay. Because um, the, at the railroad station there, that's CP 150 and um, milepost 150. So um, then you have milepost 187 is where the B&A breaks off and uh, heads down the and heads towards Selkirk, and then uh, it's about ten miles, eight miles from there. So, okay. so maybe forty-five miles. Uh, you go over the big bridge over the Hudson River. So, not. I mean, it's not real far, but it's not exactly like right there either. There's a sm- when you were uh, well. I'm sorry. Th- there's a small yard in Pittsfield. I remember when I was when I went rail fanning there when I was young. The B and M still. The Boston and Maine still had a yeah. switcher there, and they handled the traffic that the Housatonic Railroad now does. And I okay. and we chased the train from uh, we chased the train, not a train, the train from Pittsfield with a GP7 and a caboose, and a couple of cars. It went down to Canaan, Connecticut. We chased it down there. I got a photograph. I photographed it down the way. A lot of photographs. Like you know, when you're young, you take a gazillion pictures of every of nothing. Sure. And now it's like, dang, I wish I'd taken a picture of this and this and this and this. <laughs> Not just oh, yeah, yeah. 87,000 fi- photographs of the locomotive, you know, which is great. But, but When you were with CSX, did you – you never came up that far, like to Pittsfield or – Oh, absolutely. On a, no, we, uh, oh, you did? Oh, yeah, I ran to Selkirk all the time. Ah, okay. Uh, the, the things I know about so, uh, Pittsfield is, you know, when we would outlaw in Pittsfield – uh, you know, get picked up by the 
the uh, run around to get taken to Selkirk, or you know, sometimes if you were really fortunate, you got taken back to Boston. Yeah. But um, there's a really good, um, a very, very good uh, burrito place right above the station <laughs> in Pittsfield. In Pittsfield, I mean, like awesome. Like right above, not right above. There's actually two burrito places, but one of them is a bar. Uh, There's a bar that sells burritos, and that's the one that's really good. I've never been to the other one that's strictly a burrito joint. Uh, Okay. But, yeah, they had um, chorizo burritos and mm, good stuff. Ooh, yeah, I like chorizo. Yeah, good stuff. Good facts. Yeah, you wouldn't think that. Yeah, so normally what would happen is we'd always outlaw at the wrong time of day to be able to, to be able to go there and get a burrito, and it was very yeah. Good. So even when I started on my diet, and we ha- yeah. and we happened to stop at, bur- at burrito at at Pittsfield, <laughs> yes, burrito, uh, CP burrito. Um, that would be a good name. Um, but uh, even then, I was like, you know, I don't stop here enough. I'm getting a burrito. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, don't care. Yeah. I don't care about my stinking diet. I'm getting a burrito that I only get, you know, I may never come here again. So, Well, but see, you're ahead of us here in Phoenix. We don't have any really good clam chowder places. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, I was going to say, if you say burrito places. <laughs> well, I tell you what, there's a lot of burrito places. And on Sundays, because I go down to the open the store at 1.00. So it's jokingly referred to Two Bean Burrito Sunday. Uh-huh. And and I just found out today that half mile from the store is a really good Mexican family uh, burrito stand. Uh-huh. You know, because otherwise I've been just doing the, you know, taco yell. Yeah. And uh, so tomorrow I'm going down to whatever the gentleman's, it's a Spanish name, yeah. I don't know. And oh, no. uh, Taco Bell is like pig swill in comparison to the, the good stuff. Well, and yes, and it's the little I'm I'm going to use the term dive. Uh-huh. The little dive places that tend to have the best, just like in anything. Yeah, you know, cheeseburgers. Well, it carries over, translates into burritos, and I'm sure there's. Well, I know there are in Dallas. Uh, when my wife was working there, there was a little. Family uh, Italian restaurant on Coit, mm-hmm. and you had to, if you wanted anything to drink, you had to bring it in because they didn't have a liquor license. But oh, they had a Noso Buco that would just bring bring tears to a grown man's eyes, ah. and it was just family uh, run. And the real incongruity to me was they were Albanian, yeah. <laughs> they weren't Italian. There you go. That's yeah, funny. so, but anyway, it's just, all right, so no, I remember I'm glad to hear when I lived in Pittsfield has burritos. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, if nothing else. Um, I, <laughs> I remember in, when I lived in Atlanta, I was, uh, you know, you get kind of spoiled because the pizza we've got here is good. Gen, you know, as a general rule, it's hard yeah. to get, I mean, you can get it, obviously, but, you know, when I lived in Atlanta for a, a year or so, we, I mean, we'd go all over the place looking for good pizza, and it was just, the food in Atlanta, um, well, if you're getting it fried, they do good yeah. fried chicken in the South. Okay. They do good fried chicken and good, I guess, barbecue. Uh, although we really didn't go to very many barbecue places. A lot of Mexican places around Atlanta. A lot of them. Um, 
yeah, just the whole pizza thing didn't really get it. But there was I going up this road one day. As I I stopped at this mini mall. Nah, maybe it wasn't a mini mall, but the section of it. There's a section of it that you know a bunch of stores, and then the, there was the ubiquitous either food line or something. I don't know what it was, but in the and there was this really small little Italian place. And for some reason, I was like, ah, let me eat here. You know what the heck? I would stop in there. I ain't doing it. It was actually owned by a guy from Rome. He was he was Italian. He wasn't just you know he had just moved. He was first generation moved from Rome. And the food was just magnificent. <laughs> I said, this is Italian food. Yes. The pizza was good. The, you know, the sauce was great. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a place to go. Um, you know, that's, but you're right. The little places normally, not always, but normally you get the really the good food at little places. Okay. Well, tell me, I had a, because <clears throat> I'm building the the railroad for the, for the store. Yep. And it's a a display railroad. And I say that to contrast it from one built for operation. Right. So it's got two complete main lines, no loop back. I mean, there's two complete main lines so that uh, Bob can put an eastbound and a westbound train on there and not have to worry about speed matching mm-hmm. or anything. And so it's got a 17 by 25 footprint. Mm, wow. And on the store side, I did 55-inch for the outside radius and 51 on the inside and put a little little canyon between them. And then everything else is at least 40, 42. So we – I said, do you want me to make all this track, you know, hand lay it? He said, no. He said, we'll just do – oh, shoot. Mine just went blank. We'll do flex track. Right. And, and I said, well, do you want me to do Atlas? And this is right after Atlas started shipping again. Yep. I said, do you want me to do microengineering? He said, no. He said, use the Atlas. And so I did. So what I did was I had templates of my own that I used on my own railroad. And so... I just bent some of the uh, microengineering code 83 to my templates, and then it became the template for down there. Right. And so I laid it down on the uh, – so what we have is table height is 48 inches, mm-hmm. and the dominoes are roughly two feet by four feet – I'm sorry, two by eight. And then there's a half-inch uh, plywood on top of it. Okay. And then two inches of beaded polystyrene. And then half inch of pink extruded foam. And no particular reason outside of uh, I wanted it quiet. So there is just no sound resonance or anything. And uh, fairly fairly cost effective. And then the pink allows me to do shaping and carving, you know, whereas you can with beaded styrene. That stuff just goes everywhere. Right. So I took these templates laid up, turned them upside down, just laid them down in the pink as I plotted out the the railroad. And I put, you know, how, at a murder scene, how the policeman yep. traced the outline of the body. Why, that's what I did for the railroad. We had it laid out on the ground before we uh, started building the dominoes. And so then after I traced it there, 
And I'd step back, look at it. I went, yeah, okay. So we started using cork, ran out of cork. And then Bob's going, I don't know when we can get more cork. Uh, Walters doesn't have any. And I'm going, holy crap. So we had to start using Woodland Scenics. The only, I don't care one way or another, but I was super elevating the curves. Mm. Well, well, the Woodland Scenics foam is so soft that most of the effect of the super elevation is lost in the softness of the, right. of the foam. Now, are you uh, you're super elevating the, the road bed or are you super elevating the track? I was doing the track. Oh, okay. All right. I was going to say, if you're doing the road bed, that ain't going to work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But even the, the track was uh, sinking down in. Yeah. I mean, you can still see it, but it's, it's not as dramatic yeah. on the, as on the cork section. So we have wide uh, humidity swings here. I mean, it can get 50%, 60% humidity in the summer, and then, like right now, it can be sub-10%. So in the diesels Phoenix. were all... Yeah, yeah. Really? I mean, we're running single-digit humidity typically this time of year. Well, I understand that. I understand you not having any humidity, but I could, can't believe that you have any at all. Oh, again, the summer when the monsoon season comes oh, in. Monsoons in Phoenix. Well, that just means, you know, weather change. And oh. <laughs> the, the, fronts, the moisture fronts start coming out of the southeast, ah. and it's bringing up Gulf moisture and Gulf of California, I guess. And, yeah, you get – I think we were actually into the 80-degree or 80% uh, percent humidity a couple of times this summer. And at 105, you just can't breathe. Right. So, anyway, I noticed it's only been like two, three weeks. It took six months because it was – a lot of days it was just me in there building the uh, dominoes. And to get the main lines both up and running, so – First thing I did was put a bunch of six-axle diesels on there and run them around, see if there were any quirks. And we used a camera car. My buddy Mark has this point-of-view camera that's about as big as a thumb. Mm-hmm. And, but yet it's 720 progressive uh, hmm. high def. And it has a, I'm going to presume it's some kind of little, cardoid or whatever type microphone with it and runs on a uh, an XHD chip. Hmm. So Mark took a, a freight car truck and drove a hole, threaded it, and just put a single piece of uh, styrene on top of it, put a little foam pad there, and, and mounts a camera. That way the camera lens perfectly tracks with the track. Versus being on a car where you would have the swing yeah. overhang. Yeah. So we ran and watched video, and we found, ah, oh, bad piece of track. You know, cut it out. Kink here. Kink there. So today I was in there with a uh, Dremel cutting out uh, two corners mm-hmm. that had just, I guess it was the, you know, when you've done this, you just all of a sudden you can't see that, hey, this curve is all of a sudden going from right. 40 down to 20. I'm not – I'm being facetious, but – so replaced all that today. Now, this is interesting because you're a track layer yeah. and a, and a turn-up builder, you know, way beyond me. So the uh, 
every day been in there with a bright boy cleaning track because there's a lot a lot of dirt and stuff in the air out here and periodically cleaning the bright boy with alcohol and getting it done so i've noticed i had three genesis uh locos that had been speed matched i'd put them on there they had uh, uh tsunami not from the factory i put the tsunamis in them and had done the led change outs and i had them running around and it got to where they were just every five feet hesitate enough to where the sound stopped and of course the lights go out and then i was getting fault codes where you know all the lights flash i'm going what the heck is this and we had you know every piece of rail is touched by a, a feeder yeah so thursday i'm sitting there and i'm i'm just at wit's end going what the heck is this so i take a paper towel and I think, well, maybe the locomotive wheels are dirty yet again, and put uh, rubbing alcohol on it, and then take a piece of dent, dense foam scrap and wrap the cloth around it once, and I just swipe it down this rail, and it comes back black. Wow. And I go, holy cow, I just cleaned that rail. So I, you know, moved the wipe mark off a little bit and wiped another couple feet. Black as the ace of spades. Hmm. So it took about 30 minutes, but I wiped down every inch of the track with multiple uh, paper towels using this thing so they wouldn't shred on the, yep. you know, the tie or the yep. nails. Put these locomotives, well, I took the locomotives off and very quickly, you know, ran them against uh, an alcohol towel and cleaned the wheels, put them on there, and these things ran for the next five hours without a whimper. Right. And I went, I would have never guessed about that. Mm. Uh, so we're going to – so I started reading last night, and, boy, there's a lot of people like Noox. What's your opinion? That Like what? Noox. No ox. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. N O X. It's it's a cleaner. It goes back. It's even mentioned in one of Lynn Westcott's uh, books. I haven't. I have not. In a lot of the things I've done, I've I, I am not to the point where the layout's big enough to. I have not used any of that. Okay. I've heard good stories about it. I have not used any of it. I've been able to deal with. I don't per se use a bright boy. I use this other thing. It's similar to a bright boy, but it's softer. Um, and I got it at Tucker's Hobbies. Everybody was like, "Oh, you get them at Tucker's Hobbies." Now Tucker's Hobbies is kind of not really functioning anymore, so nobody knows where they're going to get them anymore. Uh, I have no idea because I've had it for so long. I have no idea who makes it. Um, but it's, to look like a pink eraser? No, it honestly looks like a, it looks like one of those sending blocks. Okay. You know, it's a gray thing that's about the. You know, it looks like a bright boy. You know, it's like that yes. silvery gunmetal color. But yes. as I said, it's not as hard as a bright boy is. It's not Crayx, right? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Like I said, I had it for so long, I have no idea what the name is. Even if they even put a name on it. Uh. 
when they sold them. You know, they just, you know, they sold them for five bucks or whatever it was at the time. And it's like, oh, wow, everybody says these are great. Let me buy one or two. You know, and I've had them. And I think Mike Rose was even saying, how the heck are we going to get these things? Because nobody knows where they got them from. And now, you know, Bob Buck is dead and they're closing the store. Or they're openly open like, like one day every other month or something. I don't know what it is. But they're not an exactly... Tucker's Hobbies was never in a high traffic area. Okay. All right. So I was right. It's called Noox, and the way they're spelling it on the, the discussion thread at uh, mrhmag.com is Noox is apparently made by San Kim is the company. Uh, but no BTS or Bar Mill, somebody like that, sells them. Okay. Nope. I've never um, never used it. Okay. Well, these guys on here. And, I mean, this thread is huge, and it's been going on for, like, two years. Uh, these guys are just rabid about Noox. You know what Flitz is? Flitz? Okay, it's the stuff that involves a process of uh, cleaning the track, rubbing it with a stainless steel washer, and then putting this Flitz on it and wiping it off. Very labor-intensive, and I, I hope I'm saying flitz right. Uh, and the guys who do that, just like the guys at Noox, will say, yeah, the most you have to do is dust your track once every six months. Ah. Well, I know, so, I know that um, – although this is, this is related but not really. Um, oh, um, Dave Frary said that he had – something hooked up to one of his end scale layouts that did project layouts and I forget what it's called but it it it, it um sends an electrical current through the rail so in addition but it only works with DC. Oh yes um, I'm familiar with that and, yes. it, and, okay. and it like it it oxidizes off or something it just burns off the dirt as you as you run over it. It just burns it off. Uh, and people were concerned with, oh, you know, it, it'll pit the wheels or it'll pit the rails or, you know, there'll be problems with it because it's kind of arcing, um, but not really. He says, I ran it for, you know, years and never had it, never had it, never cleaned the track once. You know, I ran this thing for years, so obviously it may pit the rails, but it's not pitting it that much. Uh, and I, you know, obviously Dave Frary would know what it was, and I, I, I know I've heard it, and I, if I went through the, the volumes of information on either Model Rail Radio or the Scotty Mason Show, he'd find the information somewhere. But, uh, yeah, I know there's methods that you can do to clean the track. The best way is use batteries in locomotives, and then you don't have to worry about wearing the track at all. Uh-huh. Yeah, please, let that technology arrive. Well, no, it does, so to a certain extent. Oh, no, no, I agree. I look forward to the day I don't have the wire. Um, now, it's interesting, and it's under the track and uh, electrical slash DCC uh, general heading that uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist Forums, and it's just called the NOAX thread. Like I say, it goes back to early 2012. But apparently, and this is detailed in the in the thread that, one of the guys took a piece of track who had a a friend who either worked for a lab or whatever, and he said, well, 
let me take it in and analyze what this black, you know, the black gunk that gets on the wheels. And came back and he said, that's just the uh, nickel silver oxidating. And he said, yeah, and it, it goes on in here. And listeners, you can read it for yourself, make up your own mind. But he said, everybody badmouths plastic wheels that they track, uh, you know, dirt around. They don't. They contribute to the dirt. And he goes, he said, it's partially true. They do spread it around. He said, but the reason that metal wheels do so much better with it is that they're so hard that they're actually wearing down that coating as they roll around. And I thought, well, that, that makes sense. That's similar, so, it's similar to uh, real, real wheels, you know, prototype wheels on rails. You know, the more trains go over, if there's only one train a day or one train every three days, then they normally have to put uh, a bulletin or something out saying that you have to stop at every crossing because of rusty rail. And then, and then the uh, these the um, the crossing circuits don't may or may not work properly if a, a lot of trains don't go over a, a section of track, so because of the rust. So it's essentially the same principle. The more trains, that's why people say if you run trains regularly on your model railroad, you'll have you won't have to clean it as much. Oh, I, if you're running DCC, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. So the thread that goes back to I just found it is called black gunk, and it's in again track and electrical slash DCC. It goes back to September of 2010, where the guy uh, had an analytical lab test it, and he said it is the natural oxidation of the nickel and the silver nickel plating on the track. And it's deposited in such a manner to suggest it was formed during an electrical arc. And I've heard in a dark room, you can actually see the, the very small arc coming off the wheel to the rail if, if you're running DCC. So that, that sounds feasible, feasible to me. Okay. So you still helping, uh, micros with his track laying and building turnouts? Um, not really. Uh, there's been no, re the reason I did all the work on Mike Rose's is because all of that, for that, for that complex to work, everything needed to be custom. And the new stuff that he's putting in now, he can use, um, he can use commercial products. And my schedule is more funky now. Yeah, actually, it's more regular, but I regularly know I can't go. <laughs> Whereas I could regularly go to Mike's. I had a period of time when I worked for CSX, I kind of knew that I could go down there on Mondays or Saturdays or whatever. So I really worked hard to get all of it done as quick as I can. And basically, as, basically right when I got it all done, I started working where I work now. And I haven't been able to go as – I mean, I go once every two months maybe. To a, to a train night, yeah, and I, do, I really don't do a lot of work. I've uh, now I'm going to an operation down there on the, on the 9th of November, but uh, I'm one of these guys that 
And he said, well, you are coming to the op session, right? And I says, I thought that the general tenor of the message that I got from you was if I didn't go, you'd have me hunted down and killed. So – uh, I think I was going, <laughs> Mike. Pretty well covers and it. And he says, well, well, I didn't per se want to – that was just the gist I got, Mike, was that if I don't go, you'll have me hunted down and killed. Uh, well, maybe, but, you know, that's neither – yeah, that's neither here nor there. But he says, well, I kind of I kind of want somebody to know who knows how to run that facility there so he can teach – so you can teach the other – these other two guys how to do it so that if you can't come – then at least I have somebody that knows how to run it. Because if you don't run the Mahoopany area fairly uh, fluidly, the whole railroad grinds to a halt <laughs> because everything goes through there. I mean, there's other things that are going on, but the, the, the mainline trains go through there, and a lot of them drop off. And I, I worked it out with uh, Dave Santos, the, uh, the dispatcher, that he would send the trains at a particular timing when we did the first op session. He sent them at a particular timing to give me enough time to do the work because there's a lot of work that goes on. I was, except for lunch, in about 10 minutes, the entire operating session I was going. You know, that, that job, you're, you're running, not running, but, you know, you're there operating for the entire op session. There's just so much work to do. And you were going to say something. And you were telling me that those are what, five, six hours long? Can be. I think that was six hours, maybe eight. It was like three or four hours, then the you know an hour or two for lunch, and then three. Yeah, maybe six. Six. We'll call it six. Holy cow! All right. What's new on the railroad? Ah, not much. You know, same old, same old. I have the same um, same assignment. Same job. Um, the picks are coming up shortly, so that may change, but I'm not entirely sure. I applied for a position as a train dispatcher and got an interview. One of uh, 20, it was 580 applicants. There were eight positions and only 20 people interviewed, and I was one of them. So uh, I have not... Uh, come to the conclusion 100% that I'm going to take the job if offered. But um, there's a lot more responsibility. You make more money, but you don't have the ability to make as much money, if that makes any sense, because you can't work any overtime. And, uh, well, you can, but you have to work your days off. You can't make, you can't work more in a day. Their schedules are much more restricted as a train dispatcher. No kidding. Yep. Okay. The uh, train dispatcher, by law, can only work. They they run eight hour shifts, and the maximum they can work is nine hours. And that you know, like a train crew, you can work twelve hours. If you have a release, you can work sixteen. Well, you work. You have a four hour release in the middle of the day, and you can work up to sixteen hours. You don't actually working for sixteen hours. You're working twelve hours plus the four hour release. You can be quote unquote on duty for sixteen hours. Whereas train dispatcher, maximum nine hours, and really your shift is eight hours. The only reason you would work nine hours is if the guy got stuck in traffic and you had to stay there until he showed up. 
that's the only thing that you would, or if something was going on and they needed you to stay there to finish paperwork or something, you know, some weird thing like that, then then you might stay over eight hours. I did not realize. I did not realize they were more heavily um, regulated than even the train crews are. Well, that sounds even more regulated than what they do for airline pilots. Yeah. I think their hours can stretch out longer than that. Well, I mean, you think I could be wrong. You think about it is, you know, and what I was told is you don't have time off. You know, you might have time to go to the bathroom, but you're at the desk at the computer for eight hours. You don't you don't have an hour off to go to lunch. You just eat at your desk. No kidding. You're there. You're there. I mean, they get paid quite well, but they, you know, you're there. And so he said, at at the end of eight hours, you're done. Mentally, you're done. So even, even, you know, even an overnight shift, there's stuff going on, and you may fall asleep. But there's normally stuff going on, and you get tired. I mean, even that will tire you out, even if you're so bored you want to claw your eyes out you're still getting tired so mentally it's it's a very tiring job it's a lot of responsibility because you make a mistake a lot of people will get hurt instead of just you you know okay so this is an interesting uh, thought then what does a dispatcher do i mean dispatch trains but what does that entail you're you're in charge of a section of railroad and so it's not just trains. There's track cars. There's, you know, crews, you know, people that are repairing things. You have to, you know, you have to coordinate that. You know, so a train goes past a certain point. Then there's a – you're arranging for foul time for for track gangs to do work while the trains aren't in the way, you know, things like that. And so if you switch – you can switch a train to the wrong track because you forgot that you gave – a work crew foul time and you'll plow a train right into and guys have done it they'll plow trains right into work crews and kill people so yeah yeah so it's not just trains i mean you have to coordinate the movement of trains the coordinate of track cars of you know track gangs crews signal you know outages things like that what are the visual clues while you're sitting at your desk you looking at a Series of computer screens, or I have not. I have not seen it, but I mean, if you have a dark territory, then obviously you don't have that. You'll have a train sheet, but you even have to fill out a train sheet, a paper train sheet, so that you know where things are, which trains have gone where. You're supposed to fill one of those out as the day progresses. So, you know, you're gonna know. You're gonna know train nine thirteen is gonna go from X point to X point, and it and it hit this point at this time. And hit this point, the last point at this time, and then came back at X time to Y time. So you have paperwork that you have to fill out. So you have to, you know, know where things are at any particular time. But it's very frequent. Like the the, the Needham train that I take, because I can, you know, I have my radio on, and I can hear the dispatchers. I may not be able to hear the people they're talking to, but I can hear the dispatchers. And normally on our Needham trip, uh. We'll pass a certain point, and a track car will come out right behind us. So, and and I can hear him giving the what's called a, the form D, 
which is the track warrant, for, you know, for lack of a better word, giving them a track warrant to go behind us and and follow us. And so they don't normally shunt the signals, so they have to be given permission past a red signal, and, you know, you have, you know, track out of service between X point and Y point so that they can go do whatever they have to do and, and things like that. And I, so I hear them doing that all the time. It's very, very, very common to have a train pass and then send out a road for you know, not a road foreman, but a track foreman right behind the train to follow it. Okay. Well, how many trains, talking about in a district, would be dispatched in a day? Oh, that's hard to say. Uh, that varies. I know there's a lot of variables, but... Like where you might be working, is that a busy branch, a fairly moderate traffic, or what? Fairly. I mean, this 10 or 12 trains each way per day anyway, you know. But a lot of it is the train goes out, it turns, it comes back. So, you know, in the middle of the day when there are not rush hour trains, in the rush hour there are six trains, Right. Yeah, six, seven, seven, uh, 790, 702, 704, 706, 708, 710. Those are the rush hour trains. Uh, you know, and that varies from 4 o'clock to we leave at 745. The 710 is the last rush hour inbound train leaves at 745. So there's six, and they're about a half an hour apart. And then when we are getting towards Walpole, which is three or four stops in, there's a couple of trains that are also thrown in the mix. There's two more trains that between Reedville and, you know, either Norwood or Walpole, there's a couple more trains that are thrown in the mix while we're in the picture. So you can have, you know, a couple, three trains in the same general area at the same time. But, I mean, then you have, a guy was telling me the story, he's the rules examiner now. But uh, at South Station, different, there are different length tracks. Not all the not okay. all the tracks have the same length platform, and not all the tracks are the same length, obviously. So tracks eight and nine are the longest tracks. So if you're going to have a 16 car Amtrak train, they're obviously going to go on eight or nine. Um, you know, and this just the different varying lengths of track. Now, track one is normally where the Worcester trains go, because it's just the way the, tra- the the station and everything's laid out, but that's normally where the trains go. It's about a seven-car platform, maybe. Um, and so he was telling me a story. He says there's a com- there's a glitch in the computer system that he was the Amtrak dispatcher. So he was the Amtrak terminal dispatcher, and you have Back Bay, which is five minutes away. It's about a mile and a half, two miles between Back Bay and South Station. Well, and there's there's two, there's Tower 1. Tower 1 is the is the interlocking right at South Station. And then you have Cove, and they kind of back up right next to each other. They're literally, you come out of, you come out of Tower 1, and you're looking at Cove. That's how close they are. And so he said what happens is when the trains are right next to each other on the computer screen, sometimes the numbers flip. So you're looking at the trains on the screen, and if they get close enough together, the, the, the numbers will flip. Oh, so okay. the one in the front becomes the one behind, and the one behind becomes the one in front. So, so he said, I knew 
that the Lakeshore Limited in this particular time, and it's normally a six-car train, but this is back at this point, it was like 12 cars, 13 cars, for some reason. It was probably heavy during the summertime or something like that. And so it was first. And he says, I, and I knew it. And then a Worcester train came behind it, which is a six-car uh, commuter train. Something else happened, because this was the rush hour. And yeah. while they were sitting back to back, the numbers flipped. So you had a six you oh. had a six car train and a fourteen car train, or whatever it was, it was long. You had a fourteen car train. And they flipped numbers. And so he looks at it and he says, Okay, P five oh six, whatever number it was, P five oh six, I'll put that on track one, and then I'll put the other one on track eight. Well, P five oh six was actually the four four eight. Which was fourteen cars long on a six car track. Oh, okay. At rush hour. And so literally tower one is the end of the platform. Yeah. And that's the interlocking. He says I had the I had the Lakeshore Limited strung out through the interlocking. It was blocking the entire <laughs> interlocking for rush hour. He says that they were not pleased at all. That was what, that was a, what did he do? I don't he, he didn't explain that. He didn't explain what he did, but it was like... What could he do? Basically, you have to wait till everybody gets off the 449 and then back it out. Okay. Because it's in the interlocking. Nothing else can go through. Okay. So he blocked the entire interlocking at rush hour. Oh, wow. Because of a computer glitch. I mean, nobody got hurt. But there was right. a lot of, lot of commuter trains that were late. <laughs> He was like, "Hey, okay, so this is the yeah." They were not happy at all. Said, but I said it wasn't so no wasn't like, my fault. It wasn't my fault. Yeah. Uh-huh. When was this, Jim? Oh, hey, hey, hey. hey, hey sneak in. <laughs> I was, pulled a fast one. Sorry, yeah, I'm late, guys. I was just sat down to eat. I had to eat. I didn't eat all day. So. Oh, breaking my heart. Yeah. <laughs> so not this, this was a good twenty years ago anyway. Oh okay, okay, okay. So where were you today, Chris? Oh man, I was uh, doing a banning tra- uh, train setup for the Freeman Group I'm in, and okay. yeah, it was quite the adventure getting uh, ransacked by a hundred really interested people at once. <laughs> so. It's nice to be off my feet for a little bit. Okay. Well, Jim and I were just, since you weren't here, we went ahead and just started talking. I told him I had a personal message from uh, uh, Lionel Strang, who said to, you know, give his regards to Steve. And then uh, Jim was talking about life on the uh, MBTA. What's it called now, Jim? Uh, well, it's still the MBC, MBTA, but it's run by the MBCR. Okay, so we were just talking about uh, real-life uh, railroading there, uh, Chris. Ah. ah, I see. Okay, so are you're not at your home then? You're out of town? Yeah, where I'm the out of town. Is? I'm on my 3G uh, wireless account right now. It doesn't um, sound too bad, actually. At the hotel isn't so good, as I discovered. I only have, like, two megabytes down, and so I, I'm just using my 3G right now. Kind of. Okay. I, there's a train going by me, but right, right behind me. 
Here we go. I hear the horn. There it is. So, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Banning's a railroad town through and through. I would and never think of that with a train going by. Yeah, it's uh, they're doing a, a, yeah. a hundred or hundredth year and railroad festival, something like that. And um, we're set up there with a bunch of other groups, and um, it's it's for the weekend, and yeah, a lot of a lot of people going through it too. So nice. How big is the facility where you guys are set up? Well, it's, a, it's like a high school gymnasium, so it's about the size of a basketball court. Okay. Is it just um, you guys there or other railroads? There's a, there's uh, three other groups. There's, I think, two Lionel groups and two – no, one Lionel group and two N-scale groups. It, it, are you back there – so you're going to operate tomorrow again? We're going to operate tomorrow again. We came, we kind of came up with a, a show operating scheme, and it's uh, pretty much a, there's a, a balloon on one end of the layout and a massive yard on the other with a siding kind of sparsed in between. Um, and what we have is a, a pool crew, which just takes trains from the yard and drops them off over in El Centro or uh, the balloon, and then they take a different train and go back. And they just keep doing that over and over again, and they meet in the at the siding. It's very reduced down. I mean, it, it's there's so much chaos going on. We can't really do a, a, any sort of dispatching. Just instructions would get lost, or people wouldn't hear because you know spectators are interacting and talking with us. So we we had to keep it as simple and straightforward as possible, but kind of try to simulate a little bit um, of. A working railroad, so. And it's funny too, because the climate over here is so much different than, you know, on the coast of California. It's so much drier and it's a little bit warmer. So a couple of our modules developed sun kings. Oh, you really? Yeah, the the rail had no way to go but out. (laughs) So. Now this is yeah. hand laid or flex? Uh, it's on Central Valley. Oh, okay. And um, the barge just, since it's heat activated, it just kind of like loosened uh, up, softened up a little wow. bit. Wow. Um, so I'm going back in there with some um, uh, some of the flexible sienna acrylate and kind of shooting it with the accelerator, just rock hard, get that thing into place and and down and putting setting some spikes too. So, it's been a very active morning realizing that going from a very warm environment when we set up in to a very cold environment overnight, then back into a warm environment around noon, (laughs) things are happening, you know, woods changing, it's just, it doesn't sound like you, heat expansion would create any sort of um, effect to the rail in, you know, a three-foot chunk, but it you would be so surprised. I wouldn't. You know? I wouldn't. Well, I had the, I had the same thing happen. I hand-laid I hand laid, uh, fast-track style on uh-huh. um, on a module, and I, uh, I built it in my garage, and it was unheated, you know, unheated. Un, you know, it was, I did it in the summertime, and right. then it went in and out of 
you know, air conditioning or cooler environments, and it it kinked it even being soldered. So, uh-huh. oh, yeah, no, messy, very messy. Yeah. So. There were a couple places on this one, on, uh, this one kink where it bent the spikes backwards. Ooh. Yeah, there was a I, – I, on some of the Central Valley, I, I spike every six ties, just like hand-laid wood ties. The pressure was so much where just like three pairs of those on one side, the rail just had so much force, it just bent the spike backwards mm. in place on the foot of the rail. It didn't pry up. It was just on the foot of the rail, just bent. I'm like – there must have been a lot of pressure to do something like that. Gosh. Yeah. You know, expansion um, joints are, are critical. Relearning that. Yeah, it feels like you need like about a 16th in between rail ends. Yeah, absolutely. Going from like Phoenix, Arizona over to the coast, your things would change a lot too. So. Mm. Yeah, I know my uh, complexion does every time I drive over to <laughs> Pasadena to see my wife. So when are you so, going to be moving out to Pasadena? Well, you know what? That uh, Because of the housing market, which is getting stronger here, but the disparity in values just because it's California. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. After looking at a lot of different homes, and I just, you know, my wife and I decided this does not make sense. Yeah, at this point in our life, spending three times as much for a comparable home. And I'm going, hey, do we really want to do this at our age? And uh, she goes, no, that would be foolish. And I said, well, look, you know, you're a 40-minute flight via Burbank Airport. I can drive there in five and a half hours. I said, let's just uh, visit and stuff, have pajama parties on the weekends. So that's what we're doing. So, in fact, I'm going over – she's home next weekend and then – a week or two after that, I'm going over and spend, you know, a week there in Pasadena. So it's what's neat. When I was there a couple of weeks ago, we went down to what used to be the Santa Fe Station, which is now a restaurant. But the company that owns it or does the restaurant did not change change it. When you go in, I mean, you're still looking up at the big beams. You're still on the, the same concrete floor, the... One of the luggage rooms is a uh, a different dining room. The ticketing area is now the bar, but you can look and see where all this stuff was. They just repurposed it, and it's really, it's really cool because the commuter trains run right behind it. So, yeah, and things just like living, living, yeah. living in California is more money. It's not just the amount you pay for real estate either from what i understand you know it's just things are more expensive well i paid 2.99 for gas uh, this evening when i came home from the store and it's like four bucks there right? yeah almost five it's almost five in some places like the yeah. bay area okay i timed it so that i would only have to at most buy one tank in california before i got back across the border to arizona and I paid mid fours, like four fifty five, mm. four sixty, something like that, for the cheapest grade of gas they had. Ah, you know, it is what it is. So the food, the restaurant, because uh, we ate out a lot, 
but the restaurant food I didn't think was that expensive. I mean, oh, we really? were getting good food. Uh, went to this Italian restaurant right down on Colorado Boulevard, the you know Rose Parade route, and Mijas, I think is the name of it, or something like that. But it was very nice, uh, very very good service and food. The ambiance was just real warm and inviting, and I thought, shoot, this is no much or no more than what we would be doing at a comparable uh, restaurant in Scottsdale or Phoenix. So, well, that's good. Well, f- yeah. So, I mean, that may change the next time I go over, but at least my first experience was uh, very, very pleasant. Right. The thing, and this is, Jim may not know this, but um, Chris, you may have experienced it, you know, because you used to be in, what, Tempe or Mesa? Yeah, I uh, lived over in Tempe for a year and then a okay. separate time for another year after that. And they had Starbucks, where people still take 20 syllables to order a cup of coffee. Yeah. And I go up and go, I don't care what it is. Just make it bold and make it big. What do you want room? No. Let me reemphasize. Black, bold, and big. <laughs> My wife, you know, she's, she's one of those 15 syllables to order a coffee drink. I said, hun, you got to simplify your life. See, the coffee with cream or a coffee without cream. So, you know, I want a venti latte with no foam and a little bit of this and like, okay, whatever. I don't drink coffee, thankfully, but I don't see how the baristas do it. How do you remember all that stuff? Maybe the same way where you remember what CV 29s for on a DCC decoder. Probably. There's only there's only so many. Really ever remember any of that though? Oh, you know, when I get in a Jag and I've done five or six locomotives, uh, then I can recite most of them. Somebody asks a question, oh, well, yeah, here's your value range and this is what it'll do for you. And then I go, golly, I need to get a life. I'm just remembering binary code on a, on a decoder. Hey, now, let me, let me ask a question. Okay, so two years ago, when River Rossi uh, did a uh, release of the uh, Chesapeake and Ohio H8 Alleghenies, I bought one. I just bought DC. And it has sat in the box, never been out until yesterday. And so I bought a, a 1000 series uh, yeah, Tsunami, uh, but it has to be hardwired. So I took it apart and it was uh, DCC ready if you were using, you know, ESU lock sound because I had a 21-pin uh, plug, actually 22. Apparently, one of them was just a, a void, but, you know, and tsunamis don't come with 22-pin plugs yet. So I just stripped everything out. And, of course, whoever makes this for River Rossi, they're just like Bachman. They don't use the NMRA color guide for you know, DCC wires. So I called a couple of my friends and I said, can I presume this, you know, do this? So got it wired, soldered. And because I'm working with a six wire harness that isn't tagged in any way. And I'm just presuming which these wires are. And so at first it wouldn't run, wouldn't do anything, but the lights came on. 
And then I saw that I'd miswired, so I started using spring clips to put wires together. And so I got it to, got it to move, but it went in reverse. And I went, oh, okay, so I've just, for some reason, the right engine wire is on the opposite side from the harness right engine wire. So I'm going to have to crisscross them. So I crisscross them, thinking that would put me back on, you know, forward and forward. Nothing. Wouldn't run. And I go, so I traced the wires again. I said, yeah, I've got these things soldered right. And so I just went into CV29 and just set the value at 35, which just says it's in reverse direction. But the headlights now are screwed up, of course. So set some uh, CVs here on the test track, took it to the store today, set it down on the track and fire up the uh, NCE system. And, you know, you can hear the water pump and all this stuff in the background. And it goes about two or three feet and stops. And I'm thinking, you know, Jim, the conversation we had on cleaning track. So I'm pretty sure the track is clean. And I shove it. It goes about a second. Stops. I mean, these are brakes because the sound and everything stops. So I run another train across the track, a diesel. And it's just, you know, running perfectly. And so I finally get it running. And it's just running superb. And then it'll stop. What's that sound like to you? Like somewhere like a motor lead or something is loose? I mean, there's so many pickup wheels on this this locomotive. It's it's hard to imagine that, you know, all seven or actually six, eight, 14 tender wheels and, you know, 12, 24 drivers are in dead spots. Yeah, it could be, you know, could be a motor lead, could be anything. I mean, you know, I'm not a expert on, you know, tuning locomotives, so. I oh, just dread. All right, so I'm going to take the boiler off, which is actually, I give the uh, Riverasi a lot of credit to. Uh, there's one screw that comes out up by the smokestack, and that takes the whole boiler top off and exposes the, uh, the uh, worm gears, their covers, the motor the wiring, all that stuff, and then uh, the tender is fairly easy to get into. I'm just going to have to get in there. Golly, I hate going in there. I was so, I was fried last night. I spent eight hours staring at that locomotive and soldering guns. So I just wanted to run it for a while. <laughs> oh, crap. All right. So if anybody's got any <laughs> suggestion among the listeners, you know, Paul G at MRHMag.com. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There you go. So let me get this straight, Paul. It it makes a brake noise, like the decoders making the brake noise. No, no, it just stops. It just stops. Yeah, like somebody turned the power off. And it's a straight test track? No, I've got it on the main layout. Okay, is it going around a curve, or is it on a straight, or? Both. Okay, both. so it happens on both a straight and a curve. Yep. And it's... It's not a short because I had uh, two Genesis uh, diesels on the other track running, and there was sound. They didn't even 
miss a beat. Lights didn't flash or anything. So it's not a general short. That's why I'm thinking, good grief, one of these, not so much my connection to the decoder, although I'll check it. I mean, you know, what the heck? I've screwed up uh, soldering before, but it's it's acting like there's a loose pickup in the uh, to the motor. I don't know. It's just so I'm going to bring. I'm going to see if uh, James at the store knows tomorrow. If not, I'll pack it up, bring it home, and. Did you try running on DC just without the the decoder? Uh, I. The uh, railroad at the store is there's no DC power there. Okay. Uh, I could go up to our test track, just set uh, CV29 to allow dual mode. Well, try and uh, try to put it on the, the DC decoder first, just to see how the mechanism operates. What you want to do is try to isolate it. Is this a mechanism problem or is this an electrical problem? Because if you try to right. debug something with the electrical background and it's a mechanical thing you're going to be fighting a losing battle so well right in you know when it did it so i picked the locomotive uh things you know tender wheels and everything are free and pivoting and the the two motors on the you know pivoting there's no binding there it's not jumping the you know the track it's it's free uh, and so, because yesterday when it, the first time it didn't run, I thought, I wonder if it's bound up because it's been sitting on its side for a year, but I could easily spin the flywheel and uh, the wheels and, uh, you know, all the gears and the rods moved right. quite uh, quite easily. So I am i don't think it's like, you know, some of the grease that some of the uh, manufacturers use over time, it can set up like cement. Right, and, and that's what yeah. I'm trying to think is if, if if you're putting a good decoder in on a, an engine that has some sort of gear and there might be a little bit of whale blubber that, that hardened in there, it, it's going to stop your locomotive dead in its tracks, forwards reverse after a certain period of time. So that, 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 if you could just put it on rollers or something and just – Run the locomotive just on DC just to check the the mechanism. Then bring in then then complicate the then complicate your installation by putting in the decoder, putting in all your correct uh, leads and all that soldering everything up. Then trying it again. Okay, well I can bring it home because I've got a DC power pack here, and I like I say I can switch the value in CV twenty nine to allow DC operation. Right. So I can do that. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I know one of the sponsors at the uh, of MRH, the guy makes uh, test rollers. Oh, outstanding, yeah. Uh, buying. Yeah, I'm going to go click on the link and buy a set uh, for this Allegheny, and uh, then I'll have them for the other diesels because I've got – a steamer I'm doing for a guy at one of the clubs, and so it's going to come in handy. So, all right, well, shoot, I was hoping one of you guys would go. Hey, oh yeah, here's the answer. Yeah, just, just flip a CV uh, 102 to a value of uh, a hex decimal eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pat your head and uh, 
Rub your belly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like that Budweiser commercial that says it's only weird if it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, because they're patting each other's head and stuff. Okay. <laughs> You're suggesting something like that. Yeah. Or maybe I should borrow Jim's Lego train. That will work every time. Yeah. Or, or, or a Brio set, you know. Yeah. Magnetic couplers. Oh. Hey. Yes. <laughs> and what's the uh, the Play-Doh one, Jim? <laughs> I, yeah, the Play-Doh one that's in the, the the ad, right? Yep, that's the one he wants. <laughs> he can do that. So, hey, what's happening over at Microscale? Microscale, well, we've got the holidays coming up, so we've put together a, a Christmas train. We haven't done anything sort of Christmassy in a, quite some time, and uh, there was some scuttle about, well, why don't we do something u- a little unique this year and do kind of like a freelance one, which is really off base from most of what Microscales does. They're, we're pretty well prototype models, but in this exception, you know, Joe got me thinking a lot of people are looking up the Polar Express. And yeah. what what a great opportunity it would be to, you know, introduce sort of a modeling aspect to people wanting to have a Polar Express train or something along that line without having to, you know, get something directly from the movie company, which is not going to happen, especially in model form. So... <laughs> We made a decal set where you can do as it's depicted as the Polar Northern Railroad, and they run a name train called the North Pole Express. Um, Confidentially, you can do Polar Express from this decal set. You you cut out the Polar, you cut out the Express, and (laughs) ta-da, you got the Polar Express. So that's one of the... The decal says the other one is in a real train, kind of reconnecting with uh, the prototype and doing research and, you know, doing real trains. And this is the Polar Bear Express, and that's run by the Ontario Northland in Canada. Okay. And we're doing the, I think the FPs, I forgot what they were off the top of my head. I've, I've had kind of a long day. But um, you can do the FPs, some steam generators. Uh, they come with the billboard signs that say Polar Bear Express with the correct logo on the side. Um, uh, it, it would, that's also a, a Christmassy type feel, too. So those were the two big Christmas releases. We also have um, coming out the Heritage Fleet for the Burlington Northern Santa Fe. And those were the Trinity uh, Hopper cars. Okay. So along along with that, we also released uh, some Trinity data decals too. So that that applies to a great range of stuff. So a lot there's there's quite a bit going on over at Microscale right now as far as you know getting ramped up for the holiday season, which you know the snow starts hitting the ground and a lot of people kind of just rather pull out a project and just work on that at home, you know. Well, we're already getting snowbirds in the uh, in the valley. At uh, there's like ten or twelve of us to get together for breakfast at a village inn on Wednesday morning, over in the way west part of Phoenix. Like we're almost in East LA. We're so far west, and 
Phoenix, and so a lot of the Snowbird guys are starting to, you know, new faces or faces we haven't seen in a while. Uh, each week as the Snowbirds come in, and then, you know, they end up drifting into to the hobby store, you know, to get their railroading fixed. Uh, I ordered a bunch of decals from your company last week and got them in – I had them the second day. I mean, that's, that's quick shipment. Yeah, I know Rachel and um, a few of the others that really process your orders and try to get them out as quick as they can. And oh, they did. It was excellent. Yeah, yeah. It, they, they're really just, uh, I mean, they're on it. <laughs> they take the order. They get it out as soon as they can. Um, the, the whole idea is not everything is available in a in the hobby shop and um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's the most frustrating thing is to have something painted and you're so close to being done, you know, and it might just need some lettering or a date, you know, just a little decal, and it really helps to just act, expedite that while the modeler's really feeling like wanting to finish the, this project might be something long time coming, and there's nothing more gratifying than being able to go, oh, okay, great. I can get this done now, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, down in, I think at Bellflower, California, which is still L.A. area, I guess, uh, Real Masters Hobbies, you've heard me talk about them. So I sent uh, Jeff, the guy that owns it, an email the other day, and I said, I need this decoder. Do you have it? Because my shop doesn't have it, and Walters was out of it, so otherwise I would have bought it through the store here and he goes no he said but i've got some being shipped to me i'll have them you know in two days and so two days shows up and he sends in an email he says hey i've got the decoders you need so i I went online gave him an order and ordered the speakers uh, for these e-units that i wanted to do and i had the stuff the next day it just cracks me up emails it one day and I get it the next, just via cheap mail. So that's outstanding. You know, oh yeah, and, and I've had good service like that out of Ulrich, which is farther north. Uh, what are they? Utah, Nevada, wherever. But they they do really quick shipping too. So that's important. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if the hobby's going to perpetuate and continue on, I mean, the, while having a local hobby shop is great. I, I I love going to a local hobby shop. I miss being too well, I'm sad I'm two hours away from it. I miss being closer, you know. Um, but you, as a viable alternative, having a quick ship, it just means that, that we're going to be able to finish the project when we're still feeling the fire to carry on with it, you know. Yeah. Well, if I order something for people through the store, as long as it's in stock at Walters or uh, especially Horizon, if it's Aether and coming out of California, you know, we get Walters in four days. And a lot of times we'll have the Horizon California shipment like the next day or second day at most. So a lot of the uh, vendors, I guess, are appreciating the business that's out there and, uh, you know, providing some pretty good customer service right now. You know, just out of the blue, I was at a, a train show last weekend, too, and uh, 
one of my friends I know, uh, I asked him kind of covertly, well, how, how do you, how's business been going? And he said, it's definitely on the rise. It's definitely on the rise. So there are, now, was he, was he talking seasonality or as a general trend? As a general trend. No kidding. Yeah, okay. he said last year, you know, it, it was a certain amount. It, they're, they're up like 15 to 20% better than, than last year already. Wow. That's so, significant when you're looking at year-over-year year sales. Well, also, he, he's been going into more uh, mail, you know, he does direct to customer, you know, in person. Then he also does, you know, mail. And what he said really kept him afloat last year was consignment stuff. Just being able to sell like a bathroom blue box box cars for like eight bucks, nine bucks a box. And it's kind of funny when you think about it at that price. We were buying this stuff at three or four dollars and now it's like twice the value even blue box stuff if you look on ebay it's the same stuff <laughs> you know it's the same trend it's like even a four dollar kit that we bought like in the 80s is now eight nine ten fifteen dollars and people don't even flinch about paying that right now for a blue box so we had a gentleman come in last uh thursday not not two days ago, but last week. And I saw him carrying in really big boxes of, of stuff because I was down at the store working on the railroad. And as I left, I stuck my head in the, uh, the office. I said, whoa, big consignment. And so this guy had very good taste. <laughs> and everything was had never been out of the box, brand new. So there were Genesis, there was Kato, there's P2K. He had, I think it was 15 Auto Maxes. Down there, they stretched out almost 25 feet because I put them on one of the uh, mainline tracks and was just pulling them around. <laughs> They'd never been out of the box. And so I took two of the locomotives from the consignment, two Atlas, popped them on there, got all these... Uh, Auto Max is out, and some guy saw him yesterday and goes, are these for sale? And I said, yeah, they're a consignment. And so he made an offer on them, and Bob just called the owner and said, hey, I got a guy here that'll buy everything. And so he saved a couple bucks, and we packed up uh, 15 Auto Maxes. I went, wow, so much for my display train. Yeah. That just went away in one one piece. But you're right, you can, uh, consignment, as long as the guy bringing in the, cons, you know, the merchandise has a, a good feel for where the market is, because we always let them, okay, tell me how much you want for this. And so they'll set the price on it, and we'll go, okay, I think that's, that's a good price, or no, I think that's too high. And we'll just show them on eBay. Okay, look, here's your competition. It's eBay. They're $15 less than you, even after I equalize for freight. So I don't think your stuff's going to sell. And most people will go, yeah, let's let's get more aggressive than that. The guys bringing in brass, uh, collector stuff, yeah, they're a little bit more 
firm in her price, but the ready to run, the Genesis, that kind of, you know, level of nice product. Uh, we, in the summer, when it gets slow in Phoenix market, that's is what keeps uh, a lot of cash flow coming in. People always looking for bargains. Right. Well, there was a swap meet today at the Banning Train Festival, and from what I understand, it, it was a it was a pretty pretty much a zoo over there. <laughs> you know, just uh, people bargain hunting, looking for the most bang for their buck, and. A couple guys brought back some really nice-looking weathered, you know, freight cars, tank cars, things like that. Katie's metal wheels on it, and they're picking it up for like fifteen bucks for two. And a lot of budget-conscious people right now. I mean, there's ways to enjoy the hobby without having to shell out, you know, forty dollars for a freight car. I mean, well, that it's absolutely a great time to be in the hobby for as far as like fidelity and detail. Um, also, kind of think what AccuRail is doing, too, with uh, offering um, a simple-to-build kit. You know, it kind of goes back to what Athern did, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and it, they're, they're, they're filling in. There, there is a demand for that stuff. I mean, it, if there wasn't, there, there wouldn't be any swap meets. You know, <laughs> everybody, everybody would be buying brand-new stuff and not wanting to deal with, uh, you know, blue box stuff but obviously there's a demand for it and i i, I welcome it I, I think a variety kind of brings in um the younger demographic too they don't have like 50 bucks to spend on a on a freight car so or if they, they have 50, or if they have 50 bucks they don't want to get one freight right. car yeah they don't want the locomotive you know or and, they want or they want for freight cars or they want for freight cars indeed you know. so I mean, it, well, and the the other part of the market is uh, a gentleman stopped by today with boxes of obviously Tyco train set cars. Like we have the complete Campbell's tomato soup freight train with an FP45, and everything's painted in Campbell soup colors for all their product. But you know, I'm not going to buy my four-year-old grandson. A $35 exact rail car because he's not old enough to handle it. But, you know, I'll take, pick up a couple $3 swap meat or, you know, if we've got them, Tycos with horn hook couplers and plastic wheels and let him learn about railroading and I don't have to worry about him tearing them up. And that's a, that's a, that's a great idea. The only problem is I find that some of these swap meats, it's the, it's the people with the Tyco stuff that want ridiculous amounts of money for it because, oh, it's collectible. It's a toy, you know, it's a toy train. It's collectible. And everybody's looking at it, you know, say, oh, it's $25 for this, you know, Tyco caboose. And, you know, I've, I've been there. I've, I've been to the swap meets where they want ridiculous amounts of money. Maybe $25 is over the top, but I don't remember the, I, I remember looking at it and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, it's collectible. Uh-huh. Yeah, Dubai. Yeah, I see those on auction as soupies all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I see them for a dollar and a half somewhere. But you know, a lot of these places, you know, you go to the swap meets. Not, not always. I mean, sound where you're going sounds pretty good. But you know, it seems like a lot of these train shows you go to, and the same guys are there with the same stuff that they've had for you know full retail. 
They're trying to sell it for full, full retail, and the stuff, it, you know, the stuff is so old that the 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 paper is yellowing, and they still want like fifteen bucks, you know. And you couldn't get fifteen bucks when it was new thirty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to be an educated buyer. It's just what it is. And if that's what you want for your grandson to getting going, then it's a it's a great deal, but it's got to be, like I say, our price point for that kind of car is like three bucks a piece. Right. And that's fine. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. that's exactly, you know, basically what it's worth and for what you're using it for. It's great. Yeah. Um, I just, I found it humorous that there are those out there that think, oh, it's, it's a toy train. It's collectible. No, this isn't Lionel. Tyco is not Lionel. You know what I found that was really funny on eBay not, not too long ago? Um, it was one of those old Revell kits where it was, you know, the the Hudson locking tower, the, oh. the tank, the water tank, the, you know, the crew shanty. It was still in kit form selling for over $300. I, I, my, I just couldn't believe it. It, that thing was like vintage 1950s uh, and, in a, and in a kit. 300 bucks this guy wanted for it. <laughs> I got that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> the question is, no, no bids on it? What's that? Were there any bids on it? None. There were oh. offers because he, he, he wanted, what was it? I think it was a buy it now for some 315 or something like that. And there were a number of offers for it, but all of them were rejected. So they probably yeah. offered them like four bucks or something, you know. But it, it's just really funny. The value is interpretive to some people. I mean, they, they might really like that that particular kit. And since it's a Ravel kit, it's sort of it is about 1950s or 60s. You know, it has that that era to it. You know, and that that might be of greater appeal to some than others, you know. I mean, personally, I just see it as like, well, it has a neat interlocking tower that's an SP prototype in there, and that's what, that's what I'm looking at, you know. Right. So. But, you know, the, the, but there's a big difference between Lionel and basically any HO scale item along those lines. I mean, you can, you know, the old Lionel stuff with the guy flipping out the mailbags as the train goes by or whatever, yeah. you know, that will... Pro or the cows vibrating up to the car. Yeah, now. you know, that would probably fetch 300 bucks because people will go, ah, that's original and Lionel in the box. But, you know, Tyco and the old Ravel and all that stuff, you know, why would I spend $300 on a plastic thing when I can spend $30 on a craftsman kit from Foscale Models and it looks better. <laughs> and and it doesn't take any longer to build it, really. Well, maybe maybe a little bit longer because you got to paint it. But Sorry. Well, you know what I found out, too? And I wasn't aware of this. LaBelle, the, the company that does light oil for lubrication, mm -hmm. I did not realize they did wood kits. Long time ago. Long time ago. And and this is something I found out at a swap meet. Lo and behold, here are these LaBelle wood kits. And they're not laser cut in any sort of way. They're machined. Mm -hmm. And it takes on a different quality. They're, the wood has a little bit more natural 
definition to it when it's machined versus being perfectly, you know, laser cut. Right. So I understood why people really get excited about a, an old LaBelle wood kit. You know, there, there's some people that just really love building wood kits. You know, that's outstanding, especially when you can decipher some of the techniques that went into constructing the wood kit versus the newer ones. And some of those older techniques kind of look a little bit better in some ways. Now, I still have in my possession a BevBell wood boxcar kit. But it's interesting that it's not a wood prototype. It's a modern Providence and Worcester say, rail box type boxcar, but it's a wood kit. I don't know if you remember those, the Bev Bell kits. I, I mean, it's obviously... Um, I mean, Bev Bell, Bell... As I recall it, when I started becoming a model, I remember Bev Bell as the custom painter for custom Athens. Custom painter, right. Yeah. Yeah, but it's the same company, but they, at one point, I said, like, oh, wow, you know, because there weren't so many modern boxcars at the time you had... I mean, I was started when this, you know, Athern boxcars, and that was, they weren't a whole lot of, you know, Athern and Roundhouse was basically what you had, and there wasn't a whole lot of variety if you wanted any modern-looking type boxcar, and it was Providence Worcester came with the uh, uh, the decals in the kit, and I've obviously never built the thing, because as I got older, I was like, how are you going to make a wood kit look like a metal, <laughs> a, a smooth metal boxcar? You know, I can see making it to be a wood box car because it's wood, but not metal. But maybe if you paint it enough times. Yeah, you, you got to do what some of the model airplane guys do, pull out the, I guess what they call the dope or whatever, and try to seal in all the wood grain. and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nah, not really my nah, thing. No. <laughs> Maybe it's somebody's kind of like listening. Old Warcraft cars too. You know, they, you, you open the thing; it's a pile of sticks in there, and they give you, you know, the full size plans and the directions on how to cut all this stuff and trim it and kind of fit it and build build this car. But a lot of those times, it's like what you said; they're supposed to be metal prototypes that you're using wood and. Some of that just doesn't translate very well or very easily. Right. Plastic works great. Wood, not so much. Wood does wood excellently. In my opinion, maybe there's, you know, there may be a bunch of people on the forums that are going to just rip us for, you know, but that's okay. I don't care if you want to rip me. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. That's what the young guys are here for. Well, you know, what's what's been really great about this this day, you know, spending it at a train show with a variety of people, there's been a lot of the younger generation really taking a keen interest into what we're doing, um, especially with the DCC aspect of things. Uh, they're, they're really, really interested in, in the new technology and going into controlling trains and, you know, using – technology within model railroad in general so you know i I've, I've been all weekend using my iphone to throttle up control my train you know sound the horn do all that stuff and it's been working great and 
you should see these these eyes just light up. You're using your phone to do that's cool, you know. So now is that an app? Yeah, it's uh, the We Throttle Light. I'm I'm testing it out. It's a free app that you can get on the um, App Store through Apple, and they also have one for the Android. I think it's called a uh, Rail Driver um, or Engine Driver. That's what it is. And you just turn your computer into a server for that and connect to it and start running your train with it. And that's the JMRI. I think it was in this last issue about using uh, JMRI to come up with switch lists. Well, it also works yeah. great as a, a, a throttle server for your iPhone or Android, you know, it's, and it's free. So Okay. Okay. So you have to use, like, an an NCE interface? Yeah, you use the NCE interface. interface for Digitracks. They use something called the Loco Buffer. Okay. And uh, they both kind of inter interface into the computer, and the computer is just sort of like the median between your iPhone and your DCC system of choice. Okay. Awesome, awesome. And a lot of people kind of say, well, how could you use a touchscreen to control your trains? Don't you, you know, they, they, they think that because it's a touchscreen that you can't, you know, run your train without looking at the thing. I mean, it's just like how some people can play fretless bass. I mean, it's just muscle memory after a while, and you get used to just a feel to it. And it's... It's no actually, big deal. Actually, 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 I was uh, Dave Ramos was talking about that because he has that on his layout. And with wireless throttle, so if you're using a wireless throttle with NCE or Digitrax, the I forget, he said what the speed is. It's like ten megabits a second or something like that. The the wireless throttle that you're using, the NCE throttle, has a slower. Uh, connection speed to the command station than the Wi-Fi does. The Wi-Fi is like 100 megabits a second, and the NTE uh, wireless throttle is 10 megabits a second, So in fact, or something along that line. I mean, all those numbers are wrong, but it's but what he said is when you're using the your iPhone for a throttle, it's actually more responsive than a radio throttle is. I noticed that. that. This weekend, and there's no interference or dead spots or dropouts or running yeah. to any other groups that are, oh, we're on the same channel as you type thing. It yeah. just works. Right. And it's amazing. So what people will ha what happens is when they start using their iPhone, they get a little messed up because the train is actually responding quicker than they're used to. You know, so they had, it takes a little bit of getting used to it to, you know, to get accustomed to actually how well it works as opposed to a radio throttle. And when you think of, you know, the radio system for a lot of these things, what, 300 bucks? And yeah. everybody's got an iPhone. You know, everybody has a smartphone almost nowadays. And if you don't have a smartphone, you have an iPad. iPad works just as well. It's just, you know, you don't have a knob. That's the difference. Right. Because you don't, you don't have a knob. You have a slider. Yeah. Well, the thing about the slider is you can start it anywhere on the slider and stroke down, and that turns mm -hmm. down. You can start anywhere on the slider and stroke up, and that turns up the speed. It doesn't matter where you put your finger on that slider. If it's generally on the slider and you start stroking down over and over again, it'll 
slow you down. Right. You know, and, and once you get used to that feel, it's no big deal to top or freight trains. I, I started kidding with this one guy that was watching all this. I was like, you know what? Eventually we'll have Siri, the voice recognizing commands, run our trains. You know, it'll be like, okay, four to a joint. <laughs> you know, two, one, that'll do. <laughs> So instead of being the engineer, you get to be the conductor, you know, or or on the ground, you know, a switchman or something. So it, it Siri, kind of puts you in Siri a different is, role. And Siri would probably do it better than you did. <laughs> you know, yeah, four to a hit, you know, four to a hitch, two to go, one. Are you at, are you using fifty foot car lengths or eighty nine foot car lengths? <laughs> Like, well, okay. as, as soon as you say that'll do, that'll that means stop. <laughs> All right, that'll do. That's like so. In for future reference, does that'll do mean stop? Um, but yeah, it was kind of funny because you know when you, when you go to CSX school, they say you're supposed to use, and actually the rules say you're supposed to use 50 foot car lengths. Well, when you're at a, a when you're at a piggyback yard, you don't. None of the cars are 50 feet. They're all 90 feet or 70 feet if it's a well car. So you're constantly changing. So you have to get with the engineer to say, okay, I'm going to use pigs because that's what the guys would say, the guys that were there forever. They said, okay, you know, two pigs to go, which is actually four cars because it's basically, you know, 90 feet, 100 feet. <laughs> Things would change around. I always liked buckets because you could you had to you could count the trailers. It was easier to count the trailers than because a pig is two trailers, a bucket is one trailer. If that makes any sense. So I'd always say buckets because I could just look. You know, you're looking down a half a mile, and I could count the trailers. So you just you know, twelve buckets, twenty four buckets to go. Twelve buckets to go, and but you had to get on. So that's why Siri would say, "Are you using buckets, or are you using pigs, or are you using fifty-foot car lengths?" Please, please specify. I'm sure there will be a calibration before you start using it. Yes. Well, you, you, well, you have to have you have to have your job briefing with your engineer, Siri. Right, right. But I just thought it'd be kind of neat to spin. Oh, absolutely. You know, switching a little differently instead of. You know, being the engineer controlling the train, you are on the ground giving giving orders on, you know. Well, that's exactly what I always used to say. I says I have a model. I have a model train set that's radio controlled. Because I have a radio, I tell the engineer what to do. A lot of times, he's so far away, I can't even see the locomotive. The move, the train just moves magically when I talk to it. Because the engineer never said anything virtually. Most of them right. never never responded. The train just stops and starts when you tell it to stop and start. <laughs> but when you think about it, it's like the technology is there. We have it. It's oh, yeah. a, a lot of different smartphones out there, and it's just maybe some remedial software, as software is remedial, probably not. But, well, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, it, it, it seems like the foundation is there and the just – the final stretch isn't is we're not too far from it, you know. 
honestly, I mean, when you think about that, they, I mean, the, the the biggest trick would be for Siri to understand how far the 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 engine's moving because you know all the locomotives don't respond the same way. So it would have to know how far. And the one thing about Digitrax is it trans it can transpond back to the command station. So it might actually it would tell you how fast it was going and how far it went. And then if your your program could understand and compute that to figure even you know five cars to go, and it would be able to figure that out because of what the DCC system is feeding back to it to to say how far the you know how quick the thing's moving actually. So you're right. I don't think I don't think it's that far away. I don't know if I'd want to do it, but I don't think it's that far away. It's theoretically possible, let's put it that way. I think calibration could also be, you know, these things have cameras, you know, put it stationary and just run it back and forth a few times and that might calibrate it, you know. Right. right. This is speed step 10, it moves at this speed. This is speed step 30, it moves at speed, you know. Right. And then let the thing calculate it out based upon your voice commands and go from there. Mhm. Yeah, and people don't like setting and people don't like doing um speed tables now. So all you have to do is calibrate your locomotive with the the throttle and people would like most of the people are not most people, many people their brains would melt. Well, like oh, I have to do something else. Oh no. It's getting to the point where people all all they would have to do is set their smartphone on and press the go True. button and let the smartphone control the train through a you know a couple speed tests and then it could calculate its stuff. You know, it, I've I've seen smartphones where you put it down on a smooth table and it takes a picture. It rotates the phone, it takes a picture, rotates it a little bit more, takes another picture, and creates this beautiful panorama. I'm like. Wow, <laughs> you know what they're doing with coding right now, as mm. far as just thinking outside the box. I mean, why can't we apply this to DCC and speed table calibration and stuff like that, where you put the smartphone down, and you turn on the camera, and it observes the train and adjusts the thing all by itself. You know, why not? Well, I mean, to a degree, uh, well, I guess to a big degree, the the two-way communication between the decoders on the Ring Rail Pro does just that. You know, when you make a contest, you're not concerned about speed matching because the decoders communicate with each other and they adjust the speed to where they're pulling in unison. Which is, you know, that's a real time saver. I don't have a ring system, but I've seen it demonstrated, and I'm like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. It does, yeah. and uh, I mean, there, I think there's a lot of lessons that DCC programmers and companies could could take from forward thinking like that. I, I mean, I, I really admire the ring system. In fact, I plan on getting one for my dad because I just don't want to. He doesn't. He just wants to run trains. He doesn't want to have to deal with any of the complexity. I don't mind it so much. In fact, I enjoy it because I have a technical background, you know, as a hobbyist. And yeah, I, I, I think 
the ring system for him is just touch and go. And he doesn't have to be bothered by a lot of the ins and outs and, you know, knowing some of the railroad jargon and stuff like that to, to get to run trains. Uh, he just looks at it. That's the locomotive I want to run. Tap. Okay, let's run it. <laughs> Turn up the knob, you know. I, and I think that that's something that my dad would really enjoy. You know, he, he it's, it's kind of the bigger throttle is his form factor. He has bigger hands like I do. And, you know, I, I, I see a perfect fit for a number of, you know, hobbyists out there and modelers, too, where, hey, I'm still running D.C. I don't want to go through and rewire my layout. I just want to turn up the throttle on one of um, on one of my throttles all the way up to 12 volts and enjoy ring, you know. Well, you know, the perception is because you just touched on something about that demographic. And, yeah, I'm probably older than your dad, but it, I hear it all the time. Well, I'm D.C. and I'm not going to. I don't have time to to mess with all that or it's too hard. I don't want to learn a new skill or something. And it's, it's, I go, look, I do my own installs. And, yeah, the one with the steam engine that we talked about was an, an anomaly. Most of them go very, very well, and it's it's enjoyable understanding that, applying that technology. But I could understand your comment about I think there is a certain uh, simplicity with the ring system. That yeah, I bet your dad really likes it. And you know, he's reduced. Tim has reduced the price of a lot of those decoders. He's got what now non-sound decoders and stuff. Uh, I, yeah, I think you hit it. I think your dad, if he's he likes to run trains without all the drama, he will probably love it. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, well, it, I mean, he also likes in particular passenger trains, which don't have a lot of interaction with freight, you know, consists and stuff like that. So we don't need to worry about consisting. It's just put the locomotive on the track. Let's, you know, set up a you know, a two locomotive consist, which is super easy to do with ring and run them and not have to worry about speed tables and going in there and making sure that, you know, as this advanced consist is this universal consist, how many slots am I taking up on the command station? And is this going to, you know, yeah. mess up, you know, a couple of my CVs when I advance constant, do I need to leave it on there when I'm, you know, it's just, a lot of ins and outs, and if you're not really familiar or do it regularly, and that's a big thing, doing DCC regularly can have an effect on just retention of all these little commands and ins and outs and nuances of the of the system. It's not a bad thing. It's just a little different, you know. Yeah. Well, then, and the other statements you hear a lot. Well, I've got too many locomotives to convert to DCC. And I go, all right, so you're expanding your layout. You're going to have to wire in blocks, wire in all these, uh, you know, switches so that you can, you know, control where the rheostat, you know, is controlling as far as this block, that block, you know, and you don't do all your locomotives overnight. I've only got 60 of them. I like some of my friends are in the hundreds. 
I've got 60 and I've already, I made it an ABC list. These are my first priority. This is second priority and I'll do this last group when I get to it, if I get to it. Yeah, it just becomes a system and a process. To me, that's a lot simpler than doing the complicated wiring of a, of a large DC system. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, if you're, particularly if you're going to be expanding a layout, it's like, well, you're going to be spending the money one way or the other. And. Yeah, you're going to spend money and time. Just how are you going to do it? And what's the bang for the buck? And you're going to get a lot more flexibility in operations with DCC. And you don't really have to change your current wiring if it's already there. And yet. Yeah, if it's done right, it works. And the the stuff that you're putting in can be so much simpler. Oh, gosh, yes. You have to put in or have somebody else put them in. I can't afford that. Well, you know, okay, well, just don't do them all at once. I mean, how many locomotives do you honestly use at the same time? Really? Particularly, a lot of these people are probably lone wolves. They're not having huge operating sessions. I could be wrong. But, you know, if you're having an operating session then and you need 50 locomotives running at a particular time, you know, on any given time, then okay, maybe it's, you know, going to be painful. But, I mean, if you're just one guy in your basement running trains, uh, uh, I don't see the problem. I mean, once you've used DCC, it's. I think those people, they look at it, they've never used it, and they say, I ain't going to do it. Yeah, yeah, okay, go to somebody that has the DCC installed well with sound and see what you think of it afterwards. <laughs> then see what you say. Yeah, the, the guy who does the installs for an affair with trains, uh, I had to take he did the the first one of mine, and he and I had several long conversations via phone while he was doing it. And, okay, how do you want me to set this up? Is this the speaker you want me to use and so forth? And he was so willing to talk. And so when I got the locomotive back, I just opened it up to see what he had done. And then I found a couple guys on YouTube, like Eric Fisk who has an excellent series of uh, videos, I just started emulating what Jerry had done and what I saw these other guys done. And Jerry goes, he said, do you have the uh, soundtracks manual? And I said, no. He says, well, go download it online. He said, it's about 60 pages for the diesel and about 70 for the, uh, for the steam. So I did, created a big four-inch binder for all this paper, and I started just reading it. And then I came in and put a locomotive on the test track. And once I did that, this stuff just clicked into, into place. And maybe it's the way my brain's wired, but all of a sudden it made sense. And I found it very, very easy to learn, very, very exciting. So it's a great hobby. It's a great, you know, DCC is a great thing. And I'm an old dude saying that, so. Well, yeah, what was the funny yeah, fast recently, Paul? I just got to tell you, I ran on a friend's layout <laughs> that was still DCC block control or DC block control. And 
It was funny because I completely forgot how to run DC block control. I've just been in DCC world for so long. I mean, we're, we're talking 15 years now. It, it, it just that part of my understanding of how to run DC blocks and being sure what cab you're on and being sure you got the switch flipped to the direction you want to run and this other one, make sure that you're live. And I, I was overwhelmed. <laughs> I, was, I was just completely overwhelmed by just the ins and outs and all these things that I had to do just to get from one place to another place that had nothing to do with moving a knob for the train. It was moving a bunch of knobs for just like what cab or I'm going to be on, you know, the selectors and things like that. It, was, it, it made me very grateful, especially in yard type situations where you have multiple tracks and multiple things going on, not having to worry about any of that, you know. So I, I think DCC has fundamentally changed not only the hobby, but how the new crop of modelers that are coming in that had no experience with DC other than maybe just for in a, in a train set type layout and, and just advancing right into it, you know, and just like jumping in and this is our world now, you know, okay. Yeah. It, it would feel pretty funny to go back to DC block control, you know? Well, take the, uh, the remote control airplane guys. When I started doing that as a kid in the late 50s, you know, you had a plane with a with a motor on it, and you had two strings, and that controlled the elevator and the flaps, and you just ran in circles. And I thought, well, this is boring as it can be, especially then when I trashed a plane by nosing it in. But now, what that hobby can do with the battery-powered planes the gas-powered planes, but with all that remote control stuff. And, you know, there's a couple videos on YouTube where a guy put a camera in a remote-controlled helicopter. And he's, the second one I saw was Niagara Falls, as you've never seen it before. And the first one was Tehachapi from a remote-controlled helicopter. And you talk about an eagle-eyed view. Well, just as that hobby has been transformed by uh, electronics, servo motors, and so forth, what you're saying, Chris, is how DCC has transformed our hobby. And now we got these young kids who, you know, the trains may be secondary to the fact that they're playing with DCC systems and so forth, you know? Then, yeah, which is good. It gets them interested. Then they can be hooked up or get hooked on trains. Jimmy, uh, have you ever operated a remote control locomotive in real time? I just wonder how that is because I see the guys with their belts, you know, and the locomotive's got all the flashing lights. This is a remotely controlled locomotive. And I see the guy there and I go, Wow, that has got to be a big rush. I was just curious if maybe you have. Uh No, I've been in close proximity when it's done, but I've never done it myself. No, never got the training. Thought about it. Uh, the Massachusetts law does not permit remote control locomotives in anywhere where a yard is uh, adjacent to a main track. 
Massachusetts will not allow them. CSX would have loved to have done it, but Massachusetts uh, law does not allow them to do that. Okay, the fear of mm-hmm. a train getting out on the main line and causing a yeah. I mean, at least right? with you know a two or three man crew, you have you know an extra couple of people able to do something in case something happens instead of one guy. You know? Couldn't you just put real big insulated rail joiners uh, where it connects? Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, no. Yeah, Maybe you know, just throw the switch, kill the power. Yes, push the red yeah. button twice. That's right. And everything yeah. shuts down. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got mm-hmm. an answer yeah. for him. No. <laughs> oh crap! It's been a long time. <laughs> oh. Well, gentlemen, we've been at this for two hours. What? Going on two hours? Well, I'm not funny come lately, so. Well, yeah, Jim and I have been at this uh-huh. for two hours. Chris got here ten minutes ago. Okay. Well, any parting uh, comments? One other piece of news is the last. It's not wired yet, but the last piece of track has been laid on my chocolate project layout. Yes. Um, so, well, the the track on the main layout is done. There's a there's a one section of track I have to build like a a foot and a half extension. That goes for the track that goes inside one of the buildings. I have to build that, but that that doesn't really count. The entire thing can operate without it. So, but it's all laid. I ran out of I ran out of ties. Uh, I ran I ran out of wood ties from from fast tracks. I didn't run out of PC board ties, so I was able to lay all the track down. But I, you know, it's like I, I I said, oh okay, all I need is two more piece two more sections. And I reached into the box to get it, and I was like, oh, no. This is bad. <laughs> oh, no. Houston, Houston, we have a problem. Are you going to take uh, some on-train video or something like that and post it to YouTube or somewhere so we can all I've, see it? I've posted YouTube. It, it, oh, what's it under? Uh, Tell us. Let's see. It is under, I think... My username is Hot Rod Lincoln. <laughs> I you think. think. Well, I don't normally call it up. And let's see. Hot, Hot Rod, Rod Lincoln. Lincoln. Yes. Then you're gonna drive me to drink. Right. If you don't start driving, Hot Boom Rod Boom Lincoln. Okay. Hot Rod Lincoln. Let, I'll me, get just, check uh, anyway, let me just check. Let's see. Hot Rod. Lincoln and chocolate. You have to make sure that if you're going to search on it, you're going to do Hot Rod Lincoln and chocolate. There we go. Yeah, it's not the it's not the completed. Um, it, it's not the completed thing like I just finished yesterday because I haven't wired all the tracks. The tracks are I got the feeders in, but it's not wired up into the main DCC system. So I have five videos up. Um, one of them I will take down because I'm going to send it in to, um, I think I'm going to send it in as a tip to, um, MRH. Let's see if I can, uh, simple little tip for not screwing your track up when you drill feeder holes. And, and this but is I have, the one where you took a Google Earth or one of yes. the maps and marched it to N scale? Yep, yep. And you can see that in the videos. 
Um, it's all, you can see the trains running through the, uh, um, let's see. Hey, I'm on here, and I put in Hot Rod Lincoln. All one is word. Is it all one all word one. or hot? Oh, well, my, yes, my bad. Is. I put it in as, but chocolate is yes. separate, right? I just sent okay. a link. I sent a link. Otherwise, I got a bunch of hot rod Lincoln chocolate. Woo! There we go. Chocolate ops that one. Work on chocolate one. Gluing ties. There you got it, ladies and gentlemen. Hot rod Lincoln, all one word, followed by chocolate, and then you've got. All of Jimmy's inputs. So you'll see if you look at it. And even yeah. more. Zips Hot Rod Lincoln. Yeah, that's the thing. If you, ju if you just put Lincoln. in Hot Rod Lincoln, my stuff doesn't come up to like, like yeah. four pages in or something. So. Right. But when you do it with chocolate, then the first five or six are you, and then right. we get into Austin yep. Hot Rod Lincoln. Just about a five-month-old baby singing and dancing yes. to Hot Rod Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, but yeah, it's um, this it's a five-minute video of the running trains back and forth and switching, going through the uh, got my weathered cars. It's amazing. Uh, I, every time I see the video of it, it's like the weathered cars. It's like, man, what a difference! What a difference weathering makes. <laughs> okay, when we talk again. Because I'm seeing your one of them soldering in scale track work, and you're putting it looks like a crossover, okay. a crossing. I want to talk about that. Okay. Yep. All right. I want to talk about that because I I need to make some for the uh, the store, and I'm their custom configuration. I'm thinking I love my make these. Good. I will learn from. Well, the actually, master. there's a uh, there's I learned it from. Uh, the master, who would be Tim Morris. Um, actually, I learned it from Tony Ryan, who learned it from Tim Morris, who posted links up on the Model Railroad Hobbyist forum about how to do it. So, And uh, I had built a crossing like this for Mike Rose, but I did it in separate pieces. And the way that Tim Morris suggests that you do it is so much easier and more consistent than the way I did it that I would never do it the way I did it before again. Okay. Now, what's Tim's Morris. last name? Tim Morris from Fast Tracks. Oh, okay. Tim, I, I don't know where the, the thread is on Model Robert Hobbyist, but... Well, I'll just search right. for Tim then. Uh, no. Okay. See, I pronounce it Weris, so you're Weris. saying it's Weris. Probably, it's probably Weris, and I'm, and I'm just doing it yeah. wrong. You might want to look under Tony Ryan, T-O-N-I-R-Y-A-N. Okay. Tony Ryan. And he has a really good YouTube video uh, of him building a curved crossing and then uh, and he has a YouTube video of him doing it sped up. Uh, it's stop motion, not stop motion, but time-lapse photography with music. With, you know, the flight of the okay. bumblebee as he's, as he's building it. It's actually yeah. a very good video. Okay, good. All right, Chris, you still with us? You got any last comments here? Mine is pretty much just uh, revolving kind of around track work, too, after experiencing the sun kink and realizing, again, for the 1,200 time, it seems like, uh, always put in a little bit of a, a gap 
supported by a loose rail joiner just so your rail has some little give and take there. Um, it'll save you a lot of time, if you, especially if you're going through a lot of climate changes. So my experience for today, kind of relayed to everybody else out there, Leave, leave a leave a little one, not a quarter inch gap. <laughs> yeah, just something. A thirty second of an inch that that, that should help out. Take a thirty second. <laughs> okay. Well, let's wrap it up then, boys. Otherwise, you'll otherwise you'll have real. very realistic looking track. However, model trains don't like realistic yeah. looking track. Yeah. Not yeah, quarter inch gap. That would golly, <laughs> that'd be a big. That'd be Ka-chong. a big thud. Where I wonder how many snowflakes are going to lose in that one, Paul. How many snowflakes are going to lose in that gap? Oh gosh, yes, <laughs> yeah. Everyone that comes along. And then the uh, snowplow would arc to the rail and weld itself, and <laughs> yeah. why won't why won't the engine move? Will just weld it right in place, you know. That's right. Yeah, and later on, that $500 locomotive just slowly rolls over onto the floor. Oh, no, it wouldn't do that. It would melt in place. I had a funny story relayed to me about a melting locomotive just recently. It was a – oh, I'm, this will be really quick. It's an older DC locomotive, and the guy was using some hobby town, a Boston drive, but, you know, uh, a, a high-efficiency can motor. And after a while – of hauling a 100-car train with this for hours out of the day, he noticed that the locomotive became a little less responsive. Yeah. <laughs> and by, by the last lap around, uh, he was in a modular layout set up in an oval configuration. Uh, last lap around, it was really bulky. It was just really loose. And... It gets around to, it gets around like a backdrop in some buildings. It comes out, pokes out, and there's smoke coming out of it. And it turns out that the motor melted in place. It didn't melt the shell. It melted the motor. <laughs> wow. Oops. Oops. Like, oh, was it an Alco? That's my question. <laughs> I never asked. I should have. It could, could have been like a G or Alco or even a Baldwin or something. Or you know, uh, it could be an EMD with a blown up, uh, with, you know, with a blown up turbo. Yeah, it might have been just an SP locomotive, which is commonplace for that sort of thing to happen. There you go. <laughs> My beloved SP. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I loved it too. They were great. They never washed anything. <laughs> That's why I liked it. Mm-hmm. That's right. It was echo. Yeah, it was echo friendly and Pigpen's favorite. Uh, Railroad right there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Take that. <laughs> Express, right. That's all she wrote. All right. That's all she wrote. That's, That's all she wrote. Mm-hmm.